This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. 20 volunteers entered the shuttered Fort Foster at Hillsborough River State Park May 6th. They ripped out rotten planks from a boardwalk encompassing the inside of the Palisade Walls confines. This brings the replica post one step closer to reopening when state officials recertify it is safe to the public to do so. In this episode, Louis Bear's heart, a frequent guest on the Seminole Wars Authority, returns. Louis is a living historian portraying Seminole of the period. He witnessed the operation and joins us with his observation and assessment. But first, some background on the fort. Fort Foster Historic Site is part of the Hillsborough River State Park located nine miles south of Zephyr Hills, Florida, on US 301 across from the park. The fort is a reproduction of a fort originally built on the same grounds in 1836 by Colonel William S. Foster and his 430 men. It is listed on the US National Register of Historic Places. Fort Foster was used during the Second Seminole War to defend the bridge crossing at the Hillsborough River it served as a resupply point for the soldiers in the field. The fort was garrisoned on and off from December 1836 through April 1838. In recent years, park staff and reenactors provided living history demonstrations of life at Fort Foster. Each year, the site has presented living history events, Fort Foster's rendezvous in January or February, and the candlelight dinner experience at Fort Foster during the winter months are two key attractions. The park staff has also conducted weekly tours of the park, allowing visitors the opportunity of touring the fort and the grounds when it's safe to be open. The Hillsborough River State Park Preservation Society set up a site for citizen donations to cover restructuring costs. One can find that at gofundme.com forward slash F forward slash restoration dash of dash Fort Dash Foster. The Hillsborough River State Park Preservation Society is a volunteer citizen support organization founded in 1993 to support the needs of Hillsborough River State Park and Fort Foster Historic Site. For more information, find them at historyandnature.org. Louis Bear's Heart, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be back. Louis? Tell us what happened at the Fort Foster replica last Saturday. Last Saturday, I was able to take part in the demolition of rotten wood inside of the fort that encompasses the boardwalk that goes all the way around the inside. A lot of work was put in, a lot of hours, a lot of labor, a lot of people came out, and it was great to see it. The park oftentimes uses volunteers to get more labor, especially for large projects. The Citizen Support Organization for Hillsborough River State Park organized the event and did all the recruiting and, and everything for this event. As a volunteer as well, enjoy going out and assist the parks in getting these projects accomplished. The boardwalk, catwalk, however you want to say it, enables reenactors to access the inside of the fort, enables reenactors to access the gun force during battle reenactments, permits a, a comfortable walking platform all the way around the perimeter of the interior fort. I estimate probably around 
a foot to foot and a half off the ground and maybe three or four foot wide from the palisade wall toward the inside of the fort. As I understand it, the platform had become unsafe. Rangers checking on the fort would have to use very careful footing to be able to protect the interior of the fort. Also, if this catwalk was in that state, I would imagine it would be a very large safety concern for general guests to the fort. It would probably hinder the interpretation of the fort greatly. Out with the old, in with the new. As I understand, the first part is to demo everything, and then I guess the park is going to start rebuilding everything in sections. Most important, at the top. We're going to start working on what I'm going to call the porch and ramps into each of the blockhouses and quartermaster, enabling guests to access those facilities, and then start working on the rest of the boardwalk and the cannon deck at the Sally Port. This boardwalk encompassed at least the front section of the replica fort when it opened February 1st in 1980. There is some discussion, though, about whether there was such a platform back in the day of the original fort. What can you tell us? I've had a couple of persons present research. Some say that there would have been a dirt mound in front of each gun port. Some say that there would have been a, the terminology of a bench in front of East Gunport. What I'm looking for right now is to be able to get back into the fort. So if the safety problem is gone, then we're able to get back to it. The fort has been closed since COVID break. During COVID break, the Park Service had a slow reopen. Certain parts of the parks were not open completely. From my understanding, the fort was part of that slow reopen out of caution. But over that course of time, the boardwalk sat idle and finished its rotting process. Once it came time or the park received the ability to open the fort, they said it was too far gone and very unsafe for foot traffic. Louis, this put a damper on the public's ability to access the fort site, but it also had a personal impact on you. It put a pause on my hobby. I've been doing living history and reenacting at Fort Foster since 1996, since I was 18 years old, about to be 45 years old this week, actually. And for half of my life, I've pursued this hobby, uh, this passion of sharing history with people that I wasn't able to. I'm just so happy to be able to help and, and make a, a, the first step to get it going. The fort had to be made safe. Once we removed the rotten boardwalk, now there's no safety issue. There's nothing wrong with, with the palisades. There's nothing wrong with the blockhouses or the quartermaster. So getting rid of that boardwalk enables us to get back to living history at Fort Foster. If you look at the when people are able to get back into the fort, they will see the amount of lumber that would go into that. So every... So your volunteers pulled out the rotten wood, but do they have to put in a new plank to replace it? It would be ineffective to not replace it or not have something to replace it with because for the reenacting portion of Fort Foster, the gun ports are far too high for the average human being to be able to reach through with a musket. There would have to be some sort of a, a system to elevate the reenactor to be able to use those gun ports effectively. Replacing the most important portions 
of that boardwalk or catwalk in sections as the uh, citizen support organization can raise the money. So it's going to be rebuilt in portions as the money becomes available. There is indeed a GoFundMe page. Um, They're also accepting any forms of donation directly to Fort Foster as well. So removing these planks gets us what? Enable persons to come in, view the fort, take tours, receive interpretation as the boardwalk is being replaced. It's going to depend on donations. Back in the day, Fort Foster wasn't quite the garden spot that it is today. And when it got hot, the Army abandoned the post. The way I understand, it seems like every sickly season, which is typically the summertime here in Florida, soldiers would typically leave fortifications. The war would sometimes take a little pause until the fall. I would have loved to see the original construction of the replica of Fort Foster. The way I've read the rough pose done is probably similar to how the soldiers would have constructed the original fort, digging trench and setting setting long poles upright and then filling in the trench around each pole, building the palisade in that manner. So as I understand, the 1979 rebuild and the 1994 rebuild were done in the same manner. And, you know, I don't know if it's a reenactor lore or if there's truth that the replica of Fort Foster's actually turned 90 degrees. The lore says that it was done so that the footprint of the replica of Fort Foster didn't completely encounter the remains of the original Fort Foster, therefore preserving the ground of artifacts as much as possible. Park officials got a break with volunteers able to rip up the old rotten wood, but there's still costs involved. Even though the labor is free, the CSO had to pay for the dumpster pickups. So money is still going out through this. Honestly, I think that what could happen is if we're able to get back into the fort with public, people would be able to put their eyes on it and be able to relate and associate the need for the donation so that we can get back to living history at Fort Foster. And what's it going to take to reopen? I would imagine there would be someone coming in saying, hey, okay, well, this looks good. You guys are welcome to get going. The fort, what you would see is three structures, two block houses on opposing corners, one to the east, one to the west. In the center of the grounds, the quartermaster building. Quartermaster building is what would have housed and distributed goods to the soldiers and also further down the Fort King Trail. What part did the blockhouses play in the defense of the fort? The blockhouses positioned in a way to be able to defend the fort walls, the palisades of the fort, in all directions of the fort. You'd be able to witness furnishings of the time in the blockhouses and the quartermaster, and then also hear the stories of the daily life that the soldiers lived there at Fort Foster as well. And that would be done through volunteer citizens and or park rangers. The blockhouse to the west is staged as though there was an infirmary there at the fort. The blockhouse to the east is being interpreted as an officer's quarters. The soldiers would not have slept in the fort. There's actually a drawing done from soldier camp. And from what it looks like, it appears to be upriver from the fort structure. They would have slept in tents outside of the fort. And then in the occasion of an emergency or attack, they run into the fort for protection. 
I don't believe that the garrison would have been able to fit into the blockhouses for shelter. The fort was there to protect the bridge from the Seminoles attempting to remove or burn the bridge down. The purpose of the bridge was to make it easier to cross the Hillsborough River as Fort Foster was a supply depot. The fort would have protected the bridge because before the bridge was built, the soldiers were actually fording the river, and that took a lot of time and resources to be able to do. I forgot one other structure there inside the fort, and that would be the powder magazine. The powder magazine of the day would have been built, it would have been short because the inside of the magazine would have been a hole. I'm not certain how deep the hole would have been, but there is a hole below the powder magazine. The purpose of this is if the magazine were to go off unexpectedly, the hole below the structure of the magazine would direct the blow of the powder up instead of out. The structure that the fort has is log construction with, I would imagine in the day, it would have been cypress shingles. That's the way that the current representation of the powder magazine is, is made. I don't know what the military designs would have been as far as square footage or how far away from the fort the lane would have been cleared. But thinking too, also, they're going to probably start the closest that they can with, with the trees that they had to build the fort and then eventually build it out, cut out further. So that way they would have a better sight picture at protecting the fort. Fort Foster was built over, amazingly, was built over a period of like two or three weeks. But I think they continued to improve on it and construct it and make it complete for quite a while after. As a Seminole, the purpose of going to the fort would have been to try and thwart the soldiers' efforts, trying to remove the bridge from the Hillsborough River, making it more difficult for the soldiers to get their supplies out. As I understand, there was not much action seen at Fort Foster. There was one instance of nighttime harassment by the Seminoles to the soldiers, taking pot shots from the river to the soldier camp. Everyone ran inside. There was a report saying that they had seen a Seminole running across towards the bridge with a burning palm leaf. I don't know about that, knowing how quickly palm leaves burn. But at any rate, gunfire back and forth for a little bit. One shot from the cannon out the Sally Port, and the Seminoles dispersed. But there is another report of the bridge actually getting burnt once. The candlelight tour of Fort Foster was typically held, I believe it was the second weekend of December. It was a different way of doing reenacting. I've only experienced night battles a few times around the country. Night battles give the spectators the ability of seeing how these recreated muskets and rifles look at nighttime. You see the fire coming out of the barrels, out of the touch holes, out of the flintlocks, and especially the fire coming out of the cannon as well, uh, even more impressive. To me, there's this common misunderstanding about muzzleloaders as being undependable, inaccurate, not reliable. And this enables people to see that that may not actually be the case. These weapons were weapons of war at one time. We would do our best to recreate the nightlife of the soldier in the soldier camp as well as in the fort. Likewise, the nightlife of the Seminole. Seeing, telling stories to the children, in turn, the guests of the event, sharing music, or showing the living history side, the nightlife 
side of living history, which at most events is not available. Nighttime reenacting can add another layer of fun. Let's call it fun. Essentially, on the seminal side of the night battle, during daytime reenactment, you're able to move around, you're able to be seen. At nighttime, nobody can see you. And then on that side of it, you can't see very well either. I myself, as a reenactor, seminal reenactor, I can't see very well either. Not like I'm in the fort on a boardwalk that's well lit by candlelight. We're hiding in the darkness. And so as a, a matter of safety, seminal reenactors do not move at nighttime during the battle. This is where modern day safety comes into play as opposed to historical facts. Um, in the time, the, the Seminole would not have stayed put. So knowing that the, the muzzle flash is going to give away their position, they would move. However, modern day, 2023, the more you move in the dark and the palmettos and, and, and all that, the more likelihood that there's going to be injury, right? In the reenacting world, 2023, we're staying put because number one, slip, trip, and fall hazards. Number two, your fellow reenactor next to you may not see you and you may become the target of uh, being fired at right next to you. There's a lot of, of safety thinking that has to go on nowadays. I'm hoping that that event will return as well. That was known as the Fort Foster Rendezvous. Rendezvous is more of mountain man, fur trapper, fur trader type of a situation. Anything pre-1840 goes. That event was held in usually around the, the Valentine's weekend. Would have incorporated not just Seminole reenactors, not just some soldier reenactors of 1830s Second Seminole War, but also sellers selling wares and persons of the fur trade working to educate their part of it. I was recently given some more materials showing how Later on, after the initial Fort Foster was, was built, that other structures were built outside of the fort. I know that there was an infirmary built outside of the fort. It initially started as just a tent and then had a, a shade arbor built over top of the tent and shade arbors built over top of the soldiers' tents, so on and so forth. I would imagine there was a necessity for a blacksmith shop, absolutely. I think it's incredibly important to have Fort Foster open to the public again. Louis, how important is it to have Fort Foster open to the public again? When you read history, all you know is words. When you're able to see history, you're able to put the connection between the words and real life. Through doing research and not stopping to do research and making that ability to create that connection is awesome. And that's part of why I started reenacting and doing living history is because I was able to finally see the words that I was reading. Motion, being able to put the connection of words to a thing. We're talking about a, a period of time that is so little known about publicly in general use. So few people know that Florida had Indian Wars for whatever reason. The only Indian Wars that anybody knows about primarily is the, the Western Indian Wars with General Custer and all of those folks, for some reason, that's the only Indian War that is taught or learned or known. And then you see the amazement on people's faces when they come to a Second Seminole War event and making that connection that, holy cow, Florida had Indian Wars. had no idea that the Trail of Tears didn't only encompass the Cherokee. It's amazing to me 
I get the honor to be able to explain that bit of history. When I interpret summer life and soldier life at Fort Foster, I like to interpret the fact that nobody wants to be there. Neither side wants to be there. The soldiers primarily are fresh off the boat from Ireland typically, and going from Irish climate into Florida climate is going to be one heck of a shock. And then going to fight in this war that they probably have very little information or knowledge of why they're fighting in this war. The Seminole are fighting in this war because there was no choice. They had no choice. And then maybe perhaps neither did the soldier. The soldier had no choice but to fight this war. Now both sides are coming into this definitely scared, definitely concerned, not only for their own welfare, but their family's welfare as well. Why are we here? Why are we putting ourselves in harm's way? That's a a very sobering question. As reenactors, we're going to portray that kind of side of it as well, too. The, the sticking soldiers and the horrible savages, right? I think that perhaps those things may come from trying to promote from within a feeling of urgency to go forward with this war. But at the end of the day, everyone was just human beings. During the reenactment, you get to see, especially on the Seminole side, the soldiers' tents and whatnot are going to be regulated, uniform. Uh, soldiers wear uniforms. Uniform, what does that mean? One form, one form of clothing, one form of tent, right? The Seminoles would be able to have more expression in how they would set up camp. I'd do one setup for warmer weather, and I'd do a completely different setup for colder weather. The higher the peak of your tent, the more body heat you have to produce to warm the inside of your camp. I think that it allows for imagination in recreating histories and opening your mind outside of the textbook. We can tell the story of soldiers in tents. Well, yeah, but going back to the previous question, soldiers didn't sleep in the fort. Soldiers slept in tents. You're able to have that conversation and also dispel the on the Seminole side, at least, we were able to dispel the, the myth that all Indians live in teepees, explaining how the tents that we're actually sleeping in are not war camp. They're a, a hunting camp, and we've had to use this to be able to shelter ourselves in modern-day situations. There are only human beings doing what they feel is necessary for themselves and their family at the time. We do have some members of the Seminole Tribe of Florida attend with us, that makes me feel good that they feel that I'm doing a proper interpretation of their culture. You go to different reenactments, and as a reenactor, when you register for the event, they give you what's called a guide to reenactment, a guide to the reenactment. And in those papers, they're, they're explaining what that individual park is looking for out of the reenactor to interpret to the public coming to their park. A number of reenactors are transplants to Florida. But not you, Louie. You've been around your whole life. Talk about it, please. I grew up and born and raised in Tampa, Florida. I live now just a little bit north of Fort Foster. I've been reenacting since 1996, and just earlier in this interview, realized that I've been doing living history for more than half my life. Fort Foster has been my home fort for living history. Blood, sweat, and tears into that fort for so many years. It's such a beautiful setting, such a, an awesome 
rendering of Fort Foster. My kids have gained friends there. That My kids have gained second family there. I've gained a second family there. A lot of the living history historians gather outside of Fort Foster, outside of living history, are able to converse as, as though we are family. And to be able to get back to living history at Fort Foster is a way of getting back to my family, whether it's blood or a secondary family. I think that I'm expressing that well enough in words because I, I really do miss it. I can't wait for the opportunity to carry a burning palm leaf. <laughs> now that's a sight I want to see. Louis Bearsheart, thanks again for joining us and wrapping up this story about Fort Foster for the Seminole Wars Authority. And special thanks to the park manager, Kyle Easley, the park rangers on the staff, and to the folks at the Florida Department of Historic Resources for managing this overall operation to bring Fort Foster back to the public. Absolutely. Patrick, thank you again for having me. It's been wonderful speaking with you. A lot of fun, and I look forward to getting back to living history. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation. All rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.